This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, we meet Washington State's new poet laureate, Rena Priest. We talk about her background, and we explore the tension between poetry, identity, and politics. We are also treated to two readings of her exceptional work. That is next. Rena Priest is Washington State's poet laureate. She is an enrolled member of the Lummi Nation and is the first indigenous person to be appointed state poet laureate. Her debut collection, Patriarchy Blues, received an American Book Award, and she holds an MFA from Sarah Lawrence College. Rena Priest, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Yeah, I'm happy to join you today. Well, so you were appointed back in April. Uh, how's it been going so far? It's been really wonderful. It's been it's been amazing. It's kind of been a whirlwind, but uh, I feel like I've done a lot and met a lot of new people and visited a lot of different interesting places in Washington. And it's just been really good. Well, you're touching on this a little bit, but just for the uninitiated, what does a state poet laureate do? Oh, so I will. Um, I respond to event requests and um, I will visit different communities and do readings and workshops and, um, you know, do some Q&A and just whatever they have on their agenda. I've done some graduation speeches and some some keynote addresses and it's pretty much just whatever uh, a particular organization in Washington State um, is looking to an ambassador of poetry to provide. (laughs) Well, and I know that it involves an awful lot of traveling. And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely one of those jobs that, uh, is, is pretty demanding, um, on, on, on somebody's schedule. I know that for sure. You know, I want to talk a little bit about your background and kind of how you found your way into poetry. Uh, I understand that you wrote your first poem when you were eight years old. Uh, do you remember what it was about? So it was about springtime. Uh, I had I had it for a long time. It was a homework assignment that they sent home. It was a little cloud and it had some tissue paper streamers in rainbow colors that were supposed to be rain. It was really cute. Mm-hmm. And we were just supposed to write words that we associated with springtime on it. And it, it was just too beautiful. It needed a poem. <laughs> so... So I wrote a little poem about springtime and the first few lines I can even kind of remember is something like the flowers are blooming, the bees are zooming overhead, looking for honey, something, 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 the light in the orange and pink sunset light, something like that. Oh my God. I love that. That's <laughs> so, so my, I'm curious as to how and why you were drawn as, as a young child to poetry, because often there are like specific voices or figures that kind of send you in that direction. Were there people who kind of pushed you uh, toward poetry, or exposed it to you? Well, my grandma loved poetry, um, but I, I liked Dr. Seuss a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I understand you also really like Shel Silverstein. So there's a child. Oh, I love Shel Silverstein. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they could see that I liked poetry. Um, my a, a dear friend of our family gave me a book, um, the A Light in the Attic, for my yeah. eighth birthday, and so I still have that too. It's very special. It's always such a good touchstone. And, you know, the creative process is so childlike. Um, I am fascinated by the creative process personally, and I always love to kind of hear how people work. So I, I'll, I'll ask you, 
where does a poem begin for you? Is is it a is it a phrase? Is it a lived experience? How does it how does it start for you? Yeah, so often there'll be something that um, just will catch my attention in some way or another. Sometimes it is a phrase or a a, a word pairing. Sometimes it's just a, a word pairing that sounds nice together, and then it just kind of like builds from there, you know, what is the next thought that comes after this and the next thought that comes after this. And usually in my workshops, we'll do an exercise where we kind of, um, you know, explore different possibilities through writing by responding to something that we've written previously in a few different kinds of ways. And that's actually a riff on um, an exercise in Kim Adonizio's book, Ordinary Genius, which is amazing. Um, for prompts. So if I'm ever stuck and I and I want to write a poem and I just feel like I can't find my way into a particular thought or um, feeling that I want to express, I do kind of go to, a, I have a lot of different books with writing prompts in them. And so sometimes I'll go there and um, just open it up and say, nah, nah, nah. Yeah, that one, you know. So. <laughs> It helps. It helps because sometimes you really kind of hit a wall and you feel like, I've been saying these same things over and over again. I need something to kind of jar something fresh in my mind. You know, and and I, I'm yeah. also really fascinated by like writing processes because some writers are really, really regimented and they'll be like, okay, I got to get up and I write from, you know, 6 a.m. until 12 and then I'll have a pot of coffee and then I'll do blah, blah, blah. blah. And other writers are just like, I'm not going to write unless I feel like it and the inspiration comes. How does it work for you? What's your process like? So uh, I usually will um, write when I when I feel like it. Um, but if it's been a while and I, I start to get anxious because I haven't written something for a while, then I'll just, you know, I'll kind of start doing a routine where like I'll try to write every day and, um, you know, see what what shakes out. Yeah. When but you, um, yeah. normally it's just a matter of like having to scratch the itch. <laughs> <laughs> well, what does that itch feel like? So when you don't write for a few days, is it just, is it kind of nag at the back of you and just says, Hey, I gotta, I gotta put something down on paper. There, there you know, there's peaks and valleys. There's, um, sometimes a lull in between, uh, writing stretches, um, where I don't do anything. And that I feel like is nice rest time. And, I've heard someone refer to it as gathering wool, which is really nice. I love um, that. Yeah. I, was that I, Annie yeah, Lamont who said that? that? Yeah. I want to say it was Annie Lamont who might've said it that. Might yeah. Have been. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. It was her. Yeah. It was really good. Um, but yeah, so the wool gathering stretches where you're just kind of out there looking at things and, um, you know, maybe putting things in the journal, but never really collecting it and collecting your thoughts into a poem. Um, but then it, it almost, that period kind of ends naturally where it just kind of settles. I also heard it said that, and I think it was Stephen Dobbins, who was one of my teachers when I was at Sarah Lawrence. He said, it gets to where you can feel a poem coming on like you feel a cold coming on. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I, I, I like that analogy simply because the creative process is kind of both a blessing and a curse, you know? <laughs> Um, you talk about how you will observe life and you'll go through these periods where you will just be you know, sort of paying attention and, and, and gathering wool. And your poems can sometimes be really uh, very, very personal. And 
I, when I read a poem like that, I always wonder, you know, when you're living an experience, do you ever catch yourself thinking, wow, this would make a great poem? And then does that impact how you experience that moment? I think maybe sometimes, yeah. And and often I'm wrong. What I think is going to make a good poem, it just sits in the notebooks for ages and ages and ages. And I go back to it hoping it'll become something and it just never does. And then other things where I'm just like, you know, doodling or sketching or something will end up being like a, a really um, complete thing, you know, in no time at all, like with hardly any work. So it is kind of surprising to me um, what I think for, what I think will make a good poem versus what actually makes a good poem. I, it's still kind of a little bit of a mystery. Um, and I, and I also tell people, it, it reminds me, because my dad's a fisherman. He's been a fisherman for my, for my whole life, but um, he sometimes doesn't catch them. He's, well, if I catch them all, if I caught them all the time, I'd be a catcher man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was going to... Processes, yeah. I was going to mention fishing because sometimes when you really are in the middle of, you know, what they call creative flow, it does feel like you got one on the line. You have, you have something there. Do you, have you, I would imagine over your years of writing, you've learned to kind of recognize that moment when you're in flow and, and the words are just kind of coming and the hand is almost moving without your meaning to move it. Yeah, definitely. Yep. That's really nice. That feels good. <laughs> yeah, it's and I think that's what gets writers hooked on writing in in the same way that fishermen get hooked on you know fishing or anybody gets hooked on anything. It's that feeling of like you know when you've got one on the line and it's it's you can tell it's something. Yeah, that's a really good feeling. I wonder if your writing has been impacted and the way that you think about your writing has been impacted one way or, or another, you know, after your appointment as laureate. In, in other words, do you see yourself now as, as a creative voice that is speaking on behalf of Washington or, or is that personal voice something that you kind of feel like you bring to, to this position of laureate? Um, I feel like my voice has... Uh... Well, it's not changed, but my focus has changed for sure. I think that, um, you know, your voice is so, a, a writer's voice is so unique. And so, um, well, I heard this really good quote by David Lynch. He said that when the voice that speaks to you when you're like a little child is the same one that, that, that you hear in your head when you're an, an older person. And I was like, is it though? But and, you know, maybe that's the writer's voice or the creative voice. Um, it's constant in a way. But the content, the things that I say, I've definitely shifted focus. Um, but I think that happened a little bit prior to being named Poet Laureate. Um, my first collection, Patriarchy Blues, was just kind of, you know, about living in New York and feeling like, it's just such a man's world and, and, you know, some of the, some of the challenges of, of living in that place. And, um, and then my second collection sublime subliminal was all about, uh, celebrating language and, and re-enchanting myself with the, the things that language can do. Um, and also mystery, you know, like living in, in possibility and things like that. Um, so that was a really fun collection for me to write. And then my focus shifted when I was awarded a National Geographic Society grant to um, write about 
a Southern resident killer whale that has been held captive in Miami since 1970. And um, that whole process of, of doing the research for that writing project and then writing the article, um, it kind of shifted my focus towards you know, people's relationships to the natural world and my relationship to the natural world and how it's different from the way that, you know, how we live differently from the way that I guess we're still taught in terms of values at, at Lummi um, in my tribal community. It's just a, a big contrast, the way that the world operates and the things that are valued in mainstream culture. So that is where my um, focus has shifted as the result of, of carrying out all that research and writing, doing that project. Um, and then it fits really well with my goal of raising awareness or bringing, calling attention towards the beauty of the natural world, which is um, what I said I wanted to focus my time here in this position on. And so uh, it just had a really nice resonance um, there. The the stuff that you're uh, writing now about the beauty of the natural world, there there are a couple of, of points that I want to touch on uh, there because it's it's just so gorgeous. Um, but I wanted to step back uh, just about something you were talking about with Lummi Nation and talk about the intersection between your poetry and your indigenous identity. And if you wouldn't mind, I would love to begin by asking you to read your poem, Daffodil. Daffodils, after Wordsworth. The indigenous poet writes life-affirming poems about daffodils. Her audience says, but you're oppressed. The indigenous poet writes poems of outrage about oppression. Nobody cares, she gets depressed. The indigenous poet gets requests for poems about being indigenous, but all my poems are about being indigenous. The indigenous poet isn't considered an indigenous poet because shouldn't you write about genocide? The indigenous poet tries to write poems about genocide. Her poet spirit dies. Genocide gets the job done. The indigenous poet says thanks a and writes about daffodils and the untouchable beauty of living a poet's life. I just love your use of language there. I love the the dynamic tension in that. I, I'll just ask you because you know you're you're being pushed in so many different directions. Who are the people in your mind who are applying the pressure in this poem? Probably audience members <laughs> that always you know there's always a question in the Q and A or afterwards people will come up and say why don't you write about being an Indian and and I'm like oh well. I do. I don't know if what you think is it means to be an Indian, but you know, I I I mean, I just think it's kind of a funny question too. Um, I wrote another poem, kind of looking at this recently because it keeps coming up. How does your heritage influence your work? And then I realized, well, that one phrased in that way, it gave me a a, a proper response, which is well, we share a heritage, like, you know, indigenous people and non-indigenous people share a heritage um, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the country, but it's not taught in schools, that relationship and what, what truly happened is not taught in schools or anywhere, really. Um, you have to seek it out and find it if you're not an indigenous person. Um, yeah. Because we all know. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, you know, it gets passed down at the dinner table and we, we know, you know, that people, we read the treaty and the documents and, you know, it's, it's a never ending process of learning more and more about it so that we are aware and can share that history when, when there's an opportunity to do so. But, um, yeah, it just, it's surprising me to me sometimes how there's not really a recognition of, you know, that shared heritage and, and what happened, what actually happened in this country um, and this, this Western hemisphere, really. The, the poem ends without a period. Uh, the untouchable beauty of the poet's life brings all of the, it, it's, it seems to resolve the tension a little bit, but that it seemed to say that there was, there, there was more to the discussion, but this is where you were going to leave off this tension for now. That's a good way to interpret it for sure. Yeah. Um, because it is, it is a, it is a conversation that needs constantly to be had, I think until, well, just so that people don't forget. I also think about, um, well, and it's afterwards worth, right. You know, the poem, I wandered lonely is cloud and it ends in this gorgeous, you know, epiphany about how glorious it, it is to be alive in the world and how beautiful the world and how beautiful to be a poet to like ascertain all of that. Um, but that sort of thing isn't afforded to uh, people of color. We're supposed to write about, you know, being a person of color exclusively and only about like the hard, horrible stuff that we've endured and that we endure. And I think that's all valid and legitimate um, to write about, but I also feel like it denies, it denies healing and it denies um, personhood to the poet in a really kind of grotesque way. <laughs> so that, you know, that that's probably part of what I had on my mind as well. I mean, that's, it, you know, the, the line I think that, that hit me so hard in it is the indigenous poet writes poems of outrage about oppression. Nobody cares. She gets depressed. And first and foremost, I think there is a, a universal um, feeling in that, in, in that I think we all are, are kind of screaming to whatever powers it be that, you know, there, there is oppression, there is, you know, and, and we are right to be outraged and, and nobody cares. Um, this is a very strange question, but do you ever draw inspiration from that tension there? I think that um, probably my need to write comes from that tension, from from having, you know, things unresolved within myself, um, like grief, deep intergenerational grief, uh, things that I witness that I can't do anything about, um, other people's pain, community, collective pain in my community, that, you know, it has to go somewhere. I feel like that's kind of what is part of my whole urge to write is um, to somewhat to bear witness, um, or at least to try to create some kind of um, to to work through on on the page. Right? I tell people once I heard that writing is thinking, and if you uh, you have a chance to see what you think and then think something better through the process of writing and editing. Um, it's super powerful. It's, it's a super powerful tool to kind of sort through things and work, work through hard things. Um, 
because you've said that um, you believe poetry can be a great way to uh, raise awareness for issues. Um, I'm wondering if you would mind reading your poem, Words of Encouragement. Sure. Words of Encouragement, with an epigraph by W.S. Merwin, one must always pretend something among the dying. When writing poems about extinction, it's important that you make the poems deep, but uplifting. Nobody wants to read a bummer poem about endangered orcas and their dead babies. Keep it light, keep it motivational, encouraging. It's important to accommodate your gentle reader. Don't say anything about how if you won't swim in it, why should they have to live in it? Don't say that. Honesty is offensive in this day and age. It's always been offensive. How else do you suppose we got here? Maybe instead of saying something like the orcas and salmon are going extinct because of ordinary greed and apathy, instead say something like the noble creature with his power and grace shall journey away forever through the portals of time. Good taste. Amidst mention of baby orcas abducted to be theme park clowns, decades in chlorinated cages taking their eyes, how during the capture so many died. Don't forget to forget what you know about human cruelty, how the baby orcas that didn't survive had their bellies slit and filled with stones then were sewn closed and dumped into the sea to sink into a silence so dark and so deep public outrage couldn't reach, a depth unfathomable as a mother's grief, too heavy to carry for one day, much less 17. Among the dying shall we pretend that in the end we too shall not be listed among the dead? Yes, let's pretend when writing poems about extinction. So the first thing that, that caught me was that it just... The imagery just takes your breath away. Um, it, it is it is tragic, but it is also simultaneously darkly funny. The tone is is really um, yeah. It, it, it's just it's sardonic, um, and the language is extremely straightforward. And I, I can only imagine that the ability to work on all those different levels is just so hard. And I'll just ask you, maybe kind of tying into our conversation earlier about flow. Was this a conscious approach with this piece, or is it just how the poem flowed out of you? For this, I think the inspiration was really that I did. I was somewhat being coached about how to talk about the whales um, in the beginning. That stopped after after I wrote this poem and shared the poem um, because it was the idea that, and, and it was because I had political people around me. Um, that were saying, oh, you should write about this. Well, you should write about, the, you know, they were like the political strategists at, at the Lummi Nation um, uh, Sovereignty and Treaty Protection Office um, that initiated the project to try to repatriate the Southern resident killer whale that's been in Miami, Tokatai. Um, and they, they asked if, you know, I would write poems to kind of go along with their their stuff, but not to be too offensive, you know, not to be too direct about it, not to be too aggressive or whatever, you know, and, and this is like before they had ever seen anything that I had ever written um, and not poets, right? They're, they're political strategists talking to a poet. And um, I feel like that process has actually helped me in this position that I'm in because I, I talk to a lot of not poets. Um, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. 
Well, what, what's so great is that, like you're almost reading them the stage directions or reading us the stage directions that they have given you, right? You're, yeah. you're sort of strike this tone. So you're almost yeah. throwing it back in their face. Well, that's actually, it was, that was the whole inspiration. And I was like, I don't, I'm not going to write about it the way that they want me to write about it. So, so, or, you know, I'm just not able to in some ways. And so, yeah, that, that was, that was the inspiration for the beginning of it. And then, you know, to just kind of like go ahead and let it get dark um, using the idea of a volta, which is in a sonnet, it's the turn, it's like the dramatic turn at line line eight in a sonnet. Um, so at some point, you know, you go along and you say one thing and then you like twist it and, but it's still kind of the same message, but it's different at the, at the end. I, I like it because it allows for irony and, uh, and <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm probably just as I'm a Gen Xer, I'm, re I'm reflexively inclined <laughs> to enjoy irony. So, you know, part of what you do, uh, and we were talking about this before we started, you, you travel the States, um, you, you go on speaking engagements, you, you, you talk about poetry, you teach about poetry. You, you said in a, a recent article in Yes Magazine um, that you believe that the power of poetry and stories um, can change people's narratives. We're at a point right now where our narratives are so ingrained that we almost don't communicate at all. Um, and all it, it's almost you know fairly divided from the west side of the state to the east side of the state. Do you see a role or an opportunity for poetry here? I do um, because I feel like poetry will connect people on on a you know on a different level than. Um, it just kind of opens a door, right? There's that Emily po Dickinson poem, I dwell in possibility. And she talks about how prose is a, you know, is kind of a confining house and, and poetry does, it dwells in possibility and um, the possibility for connection, which is kind of something that my, my work has focused on lately. The most recent work that I've done, the most recent few poems um, that I've written, but and allows for a conversation, you know, because there's you're when you when you say something in a poem, you're not saying, you know, come think like me. You're saying this is here's a thing, here's a here's a way. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> and and then people will all always have their response to it. But that that means something too, right? That's that's forced dialogue in a way, because <laughs> they're gonna have an emotional reaction, hopefully, um, to what they're reading. And uh, in a different way than if, if someone gives them a set of, or, you know, like a, a news article or an, an essay or a set of a list of facts that is kind of more in like in an intellectual space that they're kind of interpreting it. Um, there's a concept in Lomi Chasen in my tribal language uh, and it's which is translates to good feelings. And it's when there's no conflict between what you what you think and what you feel in your heart, when your heart and your mind are one, that's Eichhutchning, those are good feelings. And um, when you're in that state, one heart and one mind with other people around you, then good things can be made, right? Um, and it's, it's talking about resonance. And so um, that's something that that, that poetry does it joins you know thoughts and emotions and communicates them directly to someone else and so it opens the door for that 
And like you say, it also, if, if well done, I think it also raises more questions uh, than it purports to answer them and, and, and kind of engenders dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and my hope really is that people will engage with different kinds of stories, you know, because we, we unfortunately just have like this one story that has shaped the world it, it's kind of the hero's journey right the hero with a thousand faces and it's the boy hero on the journey to save humanity <laughs> and it's like um uh, that really excludes everything else like it excludes our relationship with water with other beings that live on the land and in the water it excludes our relationship to other people and, and like you know how to interact in the community and um, that article in Yes was just talking kind of about how like there is power in other kinds of stories that, you know, it doesn't have to always be the boy hero or the Avengers or saving the world with punching. Um, <laughs> we can, <laughs> we, can uh, we can just stop messing it up too, um, you know, by, by being in resonance with, with other things. Um, and the, and a lot of indigenous stories address that. Um, I took a summer workshop with Arnold Krupat, who taught indigenous literature at Sarah Lawrence for many years. I never met him. He, I think he retired. Well, and he taught undergrad, I think mostly, but um, I never met him. And so I was really excited to take this class on Zoom. And he talked about how in all of his years of teaching and you know, reading these indigenous stories, he never encountered one where people were created, rose up out of the dirt, and then were immediately alienated from the place that was their home, you know, the garden. Um, that <laughs> that's, that's a very Western story. Yeah, for sure. There's just the one, and it's the one that, you know, the whole world, like, you know, kind of follows at this point, or, you know, the mentality, it has shaped the mentality of the world. Um, but he said it's, it's a story of hierarchy and a sin against hierarchy and and I thought and, and but you know he talks about like the indigenous uh creation stories and how they're all about rising up out of the dirt and then getting to know all of the things that are there with you and you know learning how to take care of them and what your responsibility is to all of those different things and and it's like, yeah, so if that were the mentality that we were all kind of being guided from, <laughs> I think the world would be just very different. It'd be, it'd be a very different place. Of course, I have to be careful when I say this kind of thing out, out in the world because, you know, Christianity is a jealous religion, um, doesn't like all those other stories, so. It isn't, and... Um... Yeah, I, I likewise have to be careful about what I say on the matter as well. I, I will I, just simply say that I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything that you have said. Yeah, I, I feel that, you know, man is the measure of all things has misled us and that uh, everything you're talking about has stories to tell. And uh, we're just so grateful for your presence uh, in this position. Um, I will just ask you before I let you go, for people who are maybe new to poetry, who are interested in exploring it and kind of looking for a way in, find it mysterious, what are some books, besides your own, of course, um, that you would recommend as a way in for people who are looking to enjoy poetry? Yeah, so I think that like um, the, the poetry of like, Wendell Berry, W.S. Merwin, Joy Harjo, uh, 
gosh, there's just so many. Um, Mary Oliver, she's, mm-hmm. she's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I, th- I think those those ones. <laughs> well, I will provide a link for folks in the show notes where they can find more information about those poets. But uh, Rena Priest, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for taking the time today. Likewise, thank you so much. And that'll do it for this week. Thank you again to Rena Priest. If you'd like to see a video replay of this or anything that you hear on the show, head to facebook.com slash indivisiblepodcast. Our email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.